I'm pretty convinced that there's a, a general vibe in Melbourne, a spiritual vibe, in our post-Christian setting, which is generally speaking in reaction to organised religion, that while many people have blocked out uh, the notion of God or religion because of their um, perception of moral progress or intellectual progress, even still, they're a bit haunted. They're a bit... They, they feel like they're missing something. It's like um, maybe we have a in our city a spiritual case of you don't know what you've lost until you've, you've got until you've lost it. It's like um, in Western culture we've had a relationship with God and after several centuries we've dumped him and now we're on the rebound, you know. Uh, the, the, the author Julia, Julian Barnes, the, who um, wrote the Man Book winning prize book, The Sense of an Ending, he summed it up this way. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Could it be that Melbourne doesn't believe in God but misses him? As I walk around the neighbourhood in North Troy and Collingwood and Clifton Hill, I do see lots of non-religious people, people who describe themselves as, as not religious, but who are grasping for the divine in different ways. And you hear it in songs and you, you see it in like pamphlets in, in the cafes, inviting you to spiritual retreats and... Um, meditation sessions and yoga um, there's, there's still people wanting to touch the divine there's a song that came out I was, it's a bit old now, five years old but five years old seems really new to me um, uh, by the Fleet Foxes great band called Helplessness Blues and listen to this this, is the, this was their kind of big song from that album I was raised up believing I was somehow unique like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. But I don't. I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon. You will see. What's my name? What's my station? Oh, just tell me what I should do. This is the way it is for many people. My hairdresser, Diana, uh, who uh, works in Gertrude Street, she was just telling me the other day, I've got a new haircut in case you didn't notice. You know, she hasn't never been around um, organised religion. Any, She's never um, been to churches. And I, and I tried to explain to her the English Reformation, the European Reformation in my last haircut. And I was like, oh, it's but um, she said to me that this weekend um, she was going to the Grampians to um, this big sort of bush dance party thing, and I can't remember the name of it, big music festival. But she said it was really good because you get to go and it's really spiritual and musical and, and creative. And, and I could see that in her, that sort of non-religious person saying, yeah, but I do want to have something of that. And I'm not sure what she means when she says it's spiritual, but I kind of vaguely have an idea of what she's talking about. And I want to say to her, as I'm getting my hair cut, you know, oh, I could show you something spiritual. Do you want, do you want to say spiritual? I'll show, you, I'll show you God. I'll show you Jesus. But the problem that I face is that for many people in our city um, who, you know, don't believe in God but miss him, Jesus is the last place that they would go. He'd be down the bottom of the list because it feels like 
he's like, he's like the, the ex-partner that we had that we don't want to go back to. We've already been there as, as Western people. That's the perception. And yet Christians believe that Jesus reveals God. Christians believe Jesus is the only one who can reveal God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, says Jesus. We believe knowing Jesus is the same as knowing God. He's the ultimate revelation of God. And Christians want other people to know God. And in today's passage about Nathaniel, this character called Nathaniel encountering Jesus and surrendering to him and being a follower of Jesus, we learn some important truths about Jesus as the the revealer of God. Um, And we see that Jesus' revelation of God, first of all, it actually will override any kind of sceptical, intellectual argument you've got against him, if you have that revelation. And secondly, his revelation is not what you expect. And thirdly, his revelation crescendos. And if you don't know what that word means, I'll teach you in a minute. So let's look at that. Jesus' revelation of God overriding any kind of sceptical opposition you might have against him being the saviour. In the previous section from John chapter 1 that we looked at two weeks ago, um, we saw Jesus recruiting some disciples off um, his cousin, John the Baptist, sort of sheep-stealing them into his own team. And John the Baptist is fine with that because he knows that Jesus is the, is the saviour. And then in today's passage, Jesus recruits two other um, brothers, Philip and Nathaniel, who lived in the same town as Andrew and Peter, called Bethsaida. And when I see Nathaniel and, and, and the names Nathaniel and Philip, this is a tangent now, but I'll just tell you, um, what, ring, what rings in my um, mind is the fact that um, in, in, uh, in Victoria, apparently, we think, the first um, Aboriginal person to become a Christian, his name was Nathaniel. Well, he, when, he, when he was baptised, he changed his name to Nathaniel. And then his brother, when he was baptised, changed his name to Philip, Philip Pepper, Nathaniel Pepper. Anyway, you can read about him in a book called The Lamb Into the Dreaming, which actually argues that maybe he wasn't the first, but it's still it's an amazing story. It's from Gippsland. Nathaniel isn't actually mentioned in the other... Now we're talking about the Bible, Nathaniel. He, he isn't actually mentioned in the other Gospels um, as one of the twelve, except there is a character called Bartholomew, and most people think Bartholomew is Nathaniel, um, and that probably his name was Nathaniel Bartholomew, um, because... Bartholomew in the other Gospels is always associated with Philip. So that's who we're talking about. And we begin with Jesus calling Philip. And normally disciples um, actually choose their rabbi. But with Jesus, this rabbi, the rabbi Jesus, chooses his disciples. Look at verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And here, his instruction to Phil is, is it's like it's a present and a continuous follow. It's not just follow me now, it's follow me and keep following me. Be a follower of me. And verse 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And, and the, the, name, the town name Bethsaida means um, place of the fishery. And it's the third most common name a town will come across in the Gospels if, as we read about um, Jerusalem and Capernaum and then Bethsaida is the third most common town. Later on Jesus will say how bad it is but let's not get into that for now. There's no doubt the brother whom Jesus first called Philip is convinced about Jesus. He follows him and he's persuaded 
Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We've found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's convinced that the, the one that the Bible talked about, the Jewish scriptures, the future Messiah, that Jesus is that one. And, you know, he, he can think of examples from the law. Uh, so, for example, Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. And Philip's going, that, that, that is Jesus. And he thinks of um, Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he's thinking, yeah, that's the prophets. That's who... Jesus is that one. He's fully persuaded. So he tells his brother Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is surprised. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, he says? And Nathaniel is initially presented to us as a kind of a skeptic, the skeptic brother. But certainly not a hostile bloke. He's inquisitive. He's not... um, kind of rude about it. He's just sort of he's surprised. He's a bit rude. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Which is funny. It's comedy. We don't see it in 2017 so easily. Uh, because, because Nathaniel's from Cana, which is pretty piddly little town. And this bloke from a piddly little town is saying, can anything good come from Nazareth, which is also a piddly little town. He's poking fun at, you know, it's like... It's like um, Think of a local example like, imagine Bruce from Nana Goon. You know Nana Goon? It's just on the east, of, you know, outskirts of Melbourne. And he, and he rolls his eyes at Dave from the neighbouring town of Tainong and says, oh, could anything good come from Tainong? Oh, what a bogan! <laughs> Being from Nana Goon. So, so later in the Gospel of John, Jesus is called a Nazarene. It's a little bit like saying he's from Nanagu. Roll your eyes, you know. What a, what a loser. Nazareth was a small town in 2000. It was inconspicuous. Nothing special happened there. Nobody's expecting the one the law and the prophets talked about would come from there. So Nathaniel's a bit of a sceptic. And notice Philip's response. He doesn't try and have a debate. He doesn't sit down with him and say, hey, come on, you're being a bit prejudiced here. He just says in verse 46, come and see. Come and look with your own eyes and investigate who I'm talking about. The Gospel of John has this motive that goes on through the whole Gospel of seeing, of finding and of knowing. And you know the, the famous example of that, the really famous is Thomas after Jesus rises from the dead and doesn't believe that Jesus is really risen from the dead. Jesus puts out his hand and says, have a look at my, the wounds in my hands. And Nathaniel is equally invited to, to check it out, check him out, have a look. And in fact, this theme that we see in the characters in the story is pointed to us as well. We're invited to check him out and to find out um, and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, which is what it says in John 20, verse 31. If you're a sceptic about whether or not Jesus is really the Son of God, really the Messiah, but you would like to be convinced, let me suggest that it may be the case that an argument could persuade you, because there have been many examples of that in history, 
and I've known people who've been persuaded by an argument, but many, many more people have been persuaded not by an argument, but by potentially the testimony of someone, someone sharing the story of their faith, their relationship with Jesus, or an experience of the people of God. Um, often it's, it's having a look, experiencing, and hearing other people's stories, more than a logical debate that will persuade someone. Beck and I have been reading uh, in the office uh, for our staff reading a book called The Myth of the Non-Christian uh, by Luke Corley. And he's a British guy. And the, he says it's a myth of the non-Christian because he says, have you ever met a person who's described themselves as a non-Christian? You never will. Nobody ever calls himself that. It's only Christians who sometimes lob everyone who doesn't describe themselves as a Christian as one group non-Christian. And he says, what is much better is, is, is if you talk to people and you find out really what it is that they think. And so you're more likely to meet someone who says, no, I'm not a Christian, but I am an atheist, or I'm an agnostic, or I'm a lapsed Catholic, or I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And, um, but they never will say, I'm a non-Christian. That doesn't exist, that, that concept, really. Yeah, and his point is, we should stop lumping all these people into this one big group, because while we're doing that, we don't really understand people other people that, are, that don't share our faith. Um, and we're more, much more likely to connect with people if we do understand them. We're much more likely to be, even have a chance to explain Jesus to people if we know where they're coming from, whether they're an atheist or an agnostic or a lapsed Catholic or a spiritual but not religious type person. And there are many other kind of categories you could think of. And he goes on to explain this idea which he calls contextual apologetics. Sounds technical which is the idea that depending on what type of person or how they describe themselves in terms of their worldview would depend on the type of defence of the Christian faith that you might present. And he says this, makes a very specific point within that, which is that um, not all cultural groups, even in intellectual settings, like I would say probably the one that we've got, not all of them require philosophical, logical debate to be persuaded about Jesus. Sometimes that will get you nowhere. Often we think um, people need a good explanation for why there's suffering in the world. Um, or a watertight argument proving the authenticity of the Bible. But this author points out that in fact some people don't need an argument, they need an encounter with Christians loving each other or with the church or with people singing um, in church or maybe serving the poor or um, perhaps they need to hear stories, as I said before. I know at the Church Missionary Society um, Training College at St Andrews Hall, which is in Carlton, uh, in Parkville, um, so they train missionaries, one of the big skills they teach is storytelling. It's not how to have an argument, it's actually how to tell stories because so many cultures around the world, that's how they connect there was a friend of mine, Brendan, who became Christian probably 10 years ago now. Um, he started coming to church uh, with his fiance, but he wasn't, he wasn't a Christian, did, described himself as an agnostic. But like Nathaniel, he wasn't closed, closed-hearted. He wasn't like, not interested, don't talk to me. He was actually, oh, check it out. And so he started coming along to church and he even came to our small group and our, it's like a Bible study that we had once a week, and he'd sit there and listen. 
and even gave reading the Bible a go, and eventually did an Alpha course. An Alpha course is like a course that explains the Christian faith. And I realised when I sat down to pray with him at the end of that course, he came to me and said, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. Um, but I don't yet feel God, he said. <laughs> I remember him saying. I don't, and I said, I don't know what you're wanting to feel. I don't know what you're expecting. Um, um, uh, being a Christian doesn't necessarily involve having a feeling. You might have a feeling, but it's not a, like, essential. Um, but I said to him, you know, Brendan, you read the Bible. I actually know you pray because I've heard you pray. You, you come to church on a Sunday as well, and you like Christians, and you even seem to be enacting the Christian life, like you're, you're choosing to get involved with serving people, and you seem to be changing your life to conform to Jesus' teaching. I don't know much more that you need to do to be a Christian apart from it, say it out loud that you acknowledge Jesus. And Brendan gave up on waiting for the feeling and he, he, he decided to follow Jesus and we prayed a prayer together and he became a Christian. Um, and he said, now, I'm a, now I am a Christian. I, oh, I think he already was, but just, he realised it. God had been working in his life for a long time. But also he experienced the power of Christian community. And this became his apologetic, his defence for his faith. He realised this seems convincing. And this is what persuaded him. So if you're um, trying to persuade your friend, maybe your family member, about Jesus, and you've been reading lots of, you know, C.S. Lewis, he's an author that's famous for the arguments, or modern person, Tim Keller. You're reading lots of Tim Keller books on the arguments defending Christian faith. That's a good thing to do. But you might find sometimes you hit a brick wall and you find the arguments get you nowhere. Start telling your story. Whatever the case may be, Nathaniel, he learned, and so have millions of people throughout history, that the revelation that Jesus provides of God, if you receive that revelation... Ultimately, that's going to override any scepticism you've got. You might be in a position today of saying, I think I'm a Christian, but I still have lots of questions that I'm not sure about. Well, that's actually most people's experience. So you're in good company. So ask Jesus to reveal himself to you and see what happens to your scepticism. The second thing we learn in this passage about Jesus' revelation of God is that it's not what you expect. We've already learned that um, Nathaniel was surprised that Jesus came from Nazareth, so that was a surprise. But Jesus continued to surprise him. Look at verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, Nathaniel is a bit different to other Israelites, according to Jesus, because in him there is no deceit. Now, you've got to remember, by New Testament times, they didn't really use the, fr- the word or the label Israelites very much. You'd be surprised. Um, this is the only time it's used in the Gospel of John, and um, I think it's used a couple of times in Acts and, in Ro- and a couple of times in Romans and once in 1 Corinthians. It's not a very common, use of, common to use that word. So Jesus is using it very, very specifically and carefully. Perhaps he's comparing... Nathaniel to Jacob, the old uh, 
Jewish patriarch from, the, from Genesis, if you read the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Jacob, who cha- whose name is changed to Israel. When he was younger, he deceived his brother Esau for his birthright. Or Jesus is saying he's not like Jacob. Maybe that's what he's saying. He's also not like the other Pharisees that are in at that time, the, the religious, um, the Jewish religious people who are um, taking on Jesus. They're, they're skeptics, but also they're closed. They're not even interested in taking any notice of Jesus. Nathaniel has a soft heart and he's actually prepared to consider the claims made about Jesus. And it's as, as if Jesus is saying, look at Nathaniel, he's like the true Israel coming to the Messiah. He has no Jacob left in him. One writer says he's a symbol of true Israel coming to God. And so Nathaniel is shocked to hear Jesus say this. How does Jesus know anything about him? They've only just met. Verse 48. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now Jesus revealed he knew all about Nathaniel and he has this supernatural power that comes up time and time again in the Gospels. He knows about people. He sees into their heart. It's almost like his deep connection to the Father. God the Father means that he knows so many things about so many people. This wasn't magic. Jesus was revealing that he was more than a prophet. He was actually the prophet's prophet. He was the unique son of God, the son of man. And in revealing this power, he's not just trying to impress Nathaniel, but he's revealing that he is the Messiah, the one who Philip described. And Jesus said that he saw Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree, which again sounds like Jesus is using his words carefully. It might have meant that he just literally saw him sitting under the fig tree. Or um, perhaps he was alluding to the imagery of the fig tree being a, a, a symbol of prosperity in the time of the Messiah. So if you read the Jewish scriptures, the fig tree is used that way. Perhaps Jesus is saying, this time has arrived now. Perhaps Jesus is using language very similar to Zechariah 3, verse 10, which points forward to this future time, and it says, In that day each of you will invite your neighbour to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And that day, that Zechariah is pointing to, is the day when the Messiah comes. Perhaps Jesus is saying that that day that Zechariah was talking about has arrived, and Nathaniel, you were sitting there under the fig tree. And Nathaniel is surprised and blown away. And you will find, the more you investigate Jesus, the more surprised you will be. As you read the Bible and as you pray and as you uh, invite Jesus to reveal himself to you, as you spend time with the people of God, you'll be shocked at what he might show you. He will speak to you. He will definitely show you who you really are. He might point out things that need to change. He might show you gifts that you have that he wants you to develop. In my younger adult years, when I started taking my faith a little bit more seriously and I started investigating Jesus, I did have this kind of strong awareness that actually Jesus has been in my life since I was a little boy. Um, I mean, I'd gone to church for all that time, but I, maybe I hadn't thought about it that much. But then I started to realise that God had been, been working in my life through the fun times and through the difficult times. And I also started seeing things that needed to change about who I was. I remember realising how judgmental I was of other people and that that needed to change. And I started to sense that Jesus was urging me towards leadership in the church. 
and he kept wanting me to use my gifts of creativity. It's amazing what he shows you when you spend time with Jesus. So I challenge you that as you investigate Jesus, be ready for a surprise and what he might show you. He will shine the light of the Holy Spirit into your life. And like Nathaniel in verse 49, you too will be in awe of Jesus and say, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. That's amazing. Lastly, Jesus' revelation of God crescendos. Now, if you've done any music lessons, you'll know crescendo means gradually getting louder. And Jesus tells Nathaniel to expect more and greater revelation throughout his life. It's going to crescendo. Look at, look at verse 5. Jesus says to Nathaniel, You believe because I told you I saw you, I, I saw you under the fig tree. You will actually see greater things than that. Get ready. What kind of greater things will I see? Thinks Nathaniel. What could be more impressive than that? That was amazing. Well, Jesus says, He added, Very truly I tell you, and now he's talking to all the disciples, so the Yuri's in the plural, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this is a reference, Jesus is sort of evoking an imagery of the the dream or the vision of Jacob. Um, Jacob saw this vision of a ladder going up into heaven and the angels going up and down. And that vision meant for Jacob, God is going to fulfil the promises he made to Abraham. He's going to keep working in our lives and we can trust him. And so Jacob, when he had this vision, he said, how awesome is this place? And he created a shrine um, and he called that place Bethel, which means house of God. So Jesus is telling Nathaniel that he himself will be the place of much greater divine revelation than, than what Jacob saw, than Bethel. Nathaniel will see more than Abraham, more than what Jacob saw, more than what Moses saw, more than what Isaiah saw. And this is just little Nathaniel from Cana. Jesus is the new Bethel. This is what he's saying. The place where God is revealed now. Where heaven and earth, God and humanity meet. And these disciples listening to Jesus have no idea what he's talking about. Well, they've got a little sense. But soon, soon, and as we read through John, you'll see that Jesus starts to show greater things and greater things and greater things. He'll change water into wine. We'll hear about that next week. He'll heal the royal official's son. Heal the paralytic at Bethesda. He'll feed the crowd of 5,000. He'll walk on water. He'll heal a blind man. He'll raise Lazarus from the dead. And all of these greater things and greater things and these greater things are going to point to the ultimate great thing when he dies on the cross. The ultimate sign to, to which all the other signs are pointing. And it's interesting, after his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus predicts to his disciples that he says, you will even do, even do greater things than the things that you've seen. They will continue to expand Jesus' ministry. And that's where revelation from Jesus will lead Philip and Nathaniel. Not only see things, but do things. And that's where it leads us. See, Jesus' revelation of God will crescendo for you as well. You'll find in your life, if you keep investigating him and walking with him and seeking him out and inviting him into your life, that you'll see more over time. Your knowledge of God 
and your experience of God when you're 10 will be even louder when you're 20 and even louder if you stick with Jesus and even louder when you're 30 and right up until when it, at the end of your life it will get louder and louder and I know I've, I've walked with people in their last days and they see God in those last days it's amazing as your life gets more complicated as you have more experiences as you, as you take on more responsibility your world expands and it's like Jesus fills that world with greater revelation and you learn more about yourself too. So what have we said? Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. His divine revelation will override your scepticism. It will surprise you and it will crescendo. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for your revelation in our life. Uh, uh, thank you, Jesus, that you are the one that show us God. And we pray that we stick with you. Um, please continue to reveal to us who you are and who we are too. Amen.